Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 163. How much Python do you need to learn to start creating projects? What's a good balance of information and hands-on practice? This week on the show, Eric Mathis is here to discuss his book, Python Crash Course. As a former high school science, math, and programming teacher, Eric saw something missing in the programming publishing landscape. We discuss the guiding questions that inspired the book's development and the title. Eric covers how the crash course takes readers through a fast-paced introduction to Python that culminates in three unique projects. We also discuss Eric's blog, Mostly Python, where he digs deeper into technical subjects. He also occasionally shares more topical posts and includes exercises with many. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was really fun running into you and talking to you briefly at PyCon. I got a chance to to meet the <laughs> the big fish from No Starch Press, as he likes to call himself, yes. on his business card. Yes. So we had a little interview recently uh, about a hacker initiative, which was really kind of neat. And uh, it was really cool talking to you. Yes, I enjoyed meeting you. So I wanted to have you come on and talk about the third edition of Python Crash Course. And we might also get into various other kinds of, of topics and, and teaching in general as your background of being a teacher. But I wanted to start with a quick question, which is, why Alaska? <laughs> why Alaska? That is a fun question. I grew up in New Hampshire okay. in the 80s, and when all my friends started getting driver's licenses, I got my driver's license, but I kept riding my bicycle. Okay. And I have traveled by bicycle all my life. And so in my 20s, I started riding across the U.S. on a bicycle. I've Across the U.S., I think five times now, but I I enjoyed those cross country summer trips so much that I quit my job and lived for a year on my bicycle. Wow! And for that lo- that long trip, I rode from Seattle across to Maine, down to Florida, over to California, and up to Alaska. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's pretty intense. Yeah. So the first time I reached Alaska was by bicycle, and I went back to my home in New York City at the time. And it lasted three years before deciding to just move to Alaska for good. Okay, it charmed you completely when you went. It did. Wow, yes. cool. Nice. Okay, so that was, a, that was a choice. As your teaching that you had done in your background, were you doing some of that in Alaska at the time? Yeah, I, um, I studied physics in undergrad. And originally I was going to be a particle physicist, but I didn't want to be a student until my 30s. Uh, um, so, I tried, so I tried teaching for a while. And I found that the intellectual challenge of trying to reach everybody in the classroom was as as hard and as satisfying as hard science. <laughs> and so I just stayed in teaching. Yeah, it is the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I taught at a school for uh, recording engineers. And so these are kind of just outside of high school, kind of, you know, like secondary education or whatever they call it. And it, it is a challenge to uh, keep people uh, engaged and 
I always called it like infotainment that I would have to do to <laughs> keep people, uh, you almost have to add, add all the jokes and comedy routines and whatever to keep people engaged. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is, um, you know, this is always a nice personal way to start conversations, but it also informs everything I do in teaching and then in writing a book. One of the clearest things for reaching everybody is about relevance, making what you're doing relevant. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I started teaching in middle school in New York City, did that for seven years, and then moved to Alaska and I taught another 20-ish years here. At some point, you just start saying ish by decades. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Was Python a big part of that at all in your teaching? So my programming background, my dad was a software engineer in the 70s and 80s. Okay. So my first programming experience was learning to write a short number guessing game in basic on a kit, kit computer that we had in our unfinished basement um, in the late 70s, early 80s. And so I loved it. And through that, that undergrad work in physics, I, I had some exposure to a bunch of different programming languages through high school and college. So I got the classic like 80s kit of BASIC, Logo, C, Pascal, Fortran, probably some others. Yeah. And then in the early 2000s, I was doing mostly Java work and some JavaScript. And then somebody said, you should try Python. And they did. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a kind of a general question, what do you like about Python? Um, so that was 2006, I believe. Okay. That's early Python. Yeah. Yes. Still kind of. Yeah, it is. And so... At that time, I was writing my programs in Java. And for people unfamiliar, Java is a statically typed language. So you have to declare all your variables before you use them. There's a lot of boilerplate to use for every single program. And so somebody told me, you should try Python. Your programs will be about a third as long as they are in Java. <laughs> and that was a really bold claim, but also fascinating. Yeah. And I tried it, and my Python programs looked weird, the whole white space thing. But it was exactly as that person described. And that was just kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. And as people say, it was just fun. There's something about Python that just fundamentally made it more fun. Yeah. Has your, the things that you like about Python, have they changed over time? Absolutely. And I think I'll hold off on that for a moment because this kind of gets gets into the, the book and then come back to what's changed. Yeah, okay. What I like about Python has changed a bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> was there a deciding factor for you to become an author? Yes. And it comes back to, you know, was I teaching Python? So most of my teaching career has been math and science. But because I was always a hobbyist programmer, I would try to sneak in programming classes whenever I could, whenever I could fit them into the curriculum. Okay. So I taught a bunch of intro programming classes over the years. One of the most enjoyable experiences was when I first came to Alaska, or actually when I returned to a teaching job after taking some time off, we had 30 Windows computers in our school and 20, 27 of them did not work. Oh, man. So that was 2008. And I had, this was my first exposure to No Starch Press as well. I had just read um, Ubuntu for non-geeks that summer as my intro, intro to Linux. Okay. And so that fall, I taught students to install Linux on those 27 computers. Got them working. Yeah. And students maintained our fleet of computers for two years, which was fantastic. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so eventually the, the district reinvested in infrastructure and we got new computers and they were students were no longer administrators. 
Um, but it was, a, it was a really good experience. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of quickly thinking about the book, mm-hmm. who's the intended Python developer for it? Very good question. Very fun question. Um, and kind of goes back to your question of, you know, was I always thinking of writing a book? How did that come about? So, yeah, you know, I choose at times how um, kind of blunt and open to be about this, but uh, the one of the real impetuses for this was my father dying because my father died in 2011 and my mom asked me to go through his computer and tell her what was worth keeping. Was there anything that she should know on his computer as a programmer? And so that was a really profound experience and really humbling. And I saw these projects that would never see the light of day to clarify, you know, my father grew up in the time where like you kind of had to make software perfect before you released it because releasing meant yeah. writing to physical media, distributing all over the country or all over the world. You're not going to be able to put updates to that disk that's way off in another country. Exactly. So it was eye-opening for me, because I realized that if you took my computer and looked through it the same way, you'd find all kinds of projects that would never go anywhere. So I realized that I had spent a good part of my life becoming a reasonably competent programmer, and so I was looking for something to apply my programming skills to. And at that point, I had never done any professional programming work. It was all hobbyist. But I had started to use it to address some inefficiencies in education. So I went to PyCon in 2012 with the goal of finding out if there was any role for me in the programming world. Okay. And I was really intimidated to go because I didn't think of myself as a programmer. And people described the the Python community, community as welcoming. And I sure saw that. The first, the first night at the hotel in PyCon. Oh, cool! Ended up in conversations with a few people, um, and I found that immediately found that half the people I was running into were really good programmers looking for what to do with their skills, and half of the people were people with specific domain interests looking for how they could use programming to do their own work um, more efficiently and better. And was Python the fit right for that? And so my goal coming to PyCon was to get more grounded in using programming to address inequities in education. And so I was going to write kind of in- infrastructural software for, for educators. A good quick way to say that is, um, to this day, most teachers write their lesson plans in Word. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be like writing all of our code still to this day in Notepad with no programming support. Right. And so with that, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, okay, teachers can't work quite as efficiently. But what it really does is if you write three years of lessons in Microsoft Word, and then you learn how to teach better, but that teaching better requires slightly a slight restructuring of your lessons, there's no way to go back and restructure all the work that you've already done for curriculum development. And so what that really does is it holds people back from implementing better teaching strategies. Mm. And so there's all kinds of... Um, foundational things that we have figured out as programmers because we can build whatever tools we want. Yeah. feels like education, just nobody has sorted it out. That balance of profit motive, making uh, tools that are, that sell well, but aren't that great versus open tools that aren't developed to the degree of polish that they need for widespread use. Yeah. I had an experience of using a, learning management system, Moodle, Yes, probably 15 years ago. 
very interesting experience. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure how, how it's advanced since then, but um, I talked about it on a recent uh, episode about, you know, these kind of tools that come out and they try to be a one size fits all thing and it it is very awkward. Right. Yep. Yeah. So to bring it to the book, I gave a lightning talk at PyCon 2013 about all this. And it was so intimidating as a teacher to speak to 1,500 people at a programming conference when they're all looking at their laptops and phones. And I want to say, put those away. Yeah, it's very different. <laughs> yes, yes. But everybody looked up because I said a few things about how proprietary software would never like address issues in education. And if you have 1,500 programmers, you know, it tends to be a fairly, as a whole, people have initiative. And so yeah, people have figured out how they learn. Uh, they've either found teachers that work for them or they found resources that work. They figured out how to, how to start getting things done. A lot of those period people kind of have chips on their shoulder about things that were done to them in their educational experience. And so after I gave that talk <laughs> um, about how we could improve education by taking some ideas from the programming world and bringing them to the education world, not just resources, but like how we do the work, about 20 people lined up after that lightning talk to say, to kind of dump their, like, here's my educational trauma story. Here's how a teacher treated me poorly. And <laughs> I hope you build, hope you build what you're talking about because it, it really should improve education. So anyway, one of those people was um, Bill Pollock, the founder of No Starch. And he said, I like what you're doing, what you're talking about. I hope you build it. And if you want to write a book, here's my card. Nice. So, so that was, I didn't want to write a book. I wanted to go back and like build education infra infrastructure. Yeah. But I went back to my classroom and I had a poster on my wall that I had written for students. And the title was, what's the least you need to know about programming in order to do your own projects? Okay. It was a list of um, topics like variables, lists, dictionaries, whatnot, and a few common kinds of projects that people tend to be interested in. And so I looked at that and I realized that that's the, that's the table of contents for the book I wish I could teach from. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> and that was, um, that was 2013. So at that time, all the programming books that were available at that time, I had tried giving them to my motivated students with the hope that I could just start answering their questions and, and let them learn at their own pace. But all the researchers at that time made too many assumptions about what people new to programming knew. Yeah, okay. So... Like they're kind of designed for a, a different, a different audience, um, not the just total beginner, or maybe a different, even like a different age. Yeah, yeah, they were either for kids or they made assumptions that that didn't work for people. And so you're that was a long answer to your question of who's the intended audience for Python Crash Course. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. It also gets you to the you know why you started to write. <laughs> yeah. So the intent, intended audience was anybody old enough to not want a kid's book. Okay. Um, and that's kind of... A, yeah, there's kids that don't want kids' books. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so that's kind of a bold um, claim for an audience. When you write a book, you have to write a proposal. And part of that proposal is what's your anticipated market. And so writing everybody who doesn't want to be treated like a kid sounds like, uh, that's a big audience. But it worked. Yeah. So I've got... I got a handwritten letter from a 10-year-old saying thank you for the book because, you know, I had been looking for something not for kids. And I've gotten emails from people in their 70s and 80s looking to keep their minds active in retirement. And literally everybody in between. 
And so it's been really satisfying how much has worked. Yeah, it's quite the wide audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of not designed in a way for, there's a very common type of book that's out there of people that maybe have more of your background of, hey, I used to program in all these other languages. How do I learn this new language? And this is kind of not that. It's like you could start from raw fundamentals, like let's just talk about programming. Right. And I think um, it's really interesting to look at the, kind of trace the history of programming books. Back in the beginning, there were no books. They are just machines. <laughs> right. And then there were manuals. And then there were programming books by programmers for the programmers. Right, right. And then, then programmers started writing books trying to reach a more general audience. And then you had, at some point in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years ish, it feels like there's been a much more pedagogical grounding for programming books. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's definitely kind of reaching these other newer sets of authors, you know, and kind of like opening it up. Um, also, the, you know, just the, it's easier to write a book. It is. <laughs> as far as, um, as far as avenues, it's not necessarily easier to sell a book. Right. And the bar has been pushed higher. So it used to be enough if you were willing to dump a bunch of technical information into a, a book format, some people would read it. Um, that's been done so many times that you kind of have to follow through on that. It's like the old issue with teachers. Like, are you delivering information or are you teaching? Right. Are you reaching? <laughs> <laughs> are the light bulbs uh, turning on in, in, the, uh, right. in the classroom right. or not? <laughs> so that kind of is interesting to me because as I go through that and I, I look at the list of the table of contents and the things that you're covering, are there concerns that you would have of covering a large number of topics in a single book to, to go all the way to having three sets of projects inside of it? Were there concerns that you had in tackling that? Oh boy. There's two things to talk about with that. One is projects and the other is coverage. Right. And so you know, this kind of comes back to like, what's your purpose? So what's my purpose as a teacher? My purpose as a teacher has always been to give people the ability to do what they want and to give people an understand, an accurate understanding of themselves and the world around them. And so, you know, what's anybody's goal when they learn to program? Whether they're doing it out of curiosity, whether they're doing it to build something, or whether they're doing it to get a better job, their goal is not to know code. Their goal is to know code so that they can do something. And so right. when I would teach intro programming classes, I would always talk about projects starting the first day. So before I did anything with code, I would say to students, and this goes for, for young people and adults, if you had infinite programming skills, what would you build? And oh, if you have you know, eight to 12 people that's a really fun topic of conversation for any group. Right, right. It can inspire the other people that haven't thought of anything yet as the, the question goes around the room. Yeah, and so it gives, it does a couple things. It gives purpose for what you're learning. And if you don't have purpose, sure. it's really hard to keep yourself motivated and definitely hard to keep other people motivated. Uh, so it gives you a purpose and it also gives you a bunch of contexts to play with. Yeah. So if somebody says <laughs> to be topical, and current. If somebody says, I want to build a Reddit replacement, 
um, and they don't know anything about programming, <laughs> when you talk about lists, you can make a list that says like users. And now like, okay, if you're going to build a social networking site, you would need a list of users. You need a way to, to store your users. So that idea of projects, I have never really been able to teach without some idea of what we're applying the information to. So when I set about writing a book, the book was modeled on how I teach in the classroom. Not so much to like, I'm going to write down my lessons, but to say like, how do people think about programming and how do they they get to the end state that they want to be at? Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, it kind of makes sense as I go through the book, I see all these sort of gray boxes inside there, the try it yourself sort of things. Mm-hmm. Which I think, kind of taps into some of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. The one criticism of, of the book has been that the exercises are too easy. And people say that, okay, you know, for basically every, for most exercises in the first half of the book, they're really repetitive of what's already been done. They're just asking you to do that yourself. But that's quite intentional. Yeah. People are being set up for success. And I, each time I knew it, each time a new edition comes out, I go through the entire set of exercises and write out solutions. And it's a lot of work for me. And I, I wrote the book. So <laughs> I yeah. tell people, if you get through most of the exercises in the book, like you've done a lot of programming. Yeah, it's kind of hard for people who have been programming for a long time to, or even, you know, or maybe in the intermediate stage and they go, oh, that's beyond me. And it's like, well, <laughs> there's a... There, yeah. <laughs> There's exercising, literally, you know, like your body yes. and, and starting over again. And, and it's like you you need to write code. You need to get in the practice of it. And you learn a lot by putting fingers to the keyboard and, and punching through a lot of that stuff. And it's something I, I struggle with music-wise uh, often where it's like, you know, I want to jump all the way to creating entire songs and so forth. And, and sometimes it's like, well, no, there's there's some other things in between there often that you need to kind of keep keep honed. <laughs> and so I can kind of see the the pushback, but I also can see why it's important from having experienced myself trying to get people to do things along in like the video courses that I create. It's like, yeah, it's important that you, you type this stuff and, and you follow along, you know, and, and get that, like I said, the keyboard under your hands. <laughs> yeah, I just started piano lessons recently. My wife got me three piano lessons for Valentine's Day this year, which was perfect. Okay. And so my teacher, and I end up continuing the lessons. I, I love it. Um, but my teacher has helped me choose a harder piece. That's my goal. And I can play like individual measures. Okay. But my real joy is like the simplest starting exercises that I can try to play well. And I feel like that's nice. People who are familiar with playing instruments can kind of relate to this idea of like having bigger performance pieces and smaller exercises where you're learning specific skills. It makes me think about something. One of my problems with Mm -hmm. music teaching generally has been that they have you play these songs very often that are maybe for a lack of, you know, really great verbiage here are kind of boring as far as mm-hmm. like they they're something that they don't you don't know they're not popular quote unquote music mm-hmm. it, it may be something that you aren't going to bring your friend over and play for them mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i think about that in the exercise stuff that you're doing in, in kind of a similar way it's like are you 
creating something that you want to create or that you want to show to someone else that, hey, I created this thing, you know, with the help of the book or whatever. You know, it's not like you didn't have the sheet music in front of you kind of thing. And I wonder if that's kind of like a similar thing in programming, like like th- that idea of like, I want to be doing something that is of interest to me and not just a, a quote unquote exercise. Yeah, I think that's that's a hard thing in education. And that's one of the things that separates yeah. to, to just be direct good teachers from less good teachers. People need to be able, people need to be told when to expect their skills to be good enough to kind of interact with others in the field. Right. Yeah. Music is interesting because you can find shorter, simpler pieces that, that can sound good if played well. Right. The reality for people learning programming is that, you know, I think one of the, the myths that gets passed around is that you can read an intro programming book and go get a, a high paying job. And so yeah. there's a there's a level that people need to get to in order to to do meaningful work. But this all comes back down to like your your one of your questions was about that idea to include projects in the book. It is, I think it's one of the biggest reasons that the book has done well, because people can go from knowing nothing about programming to like building a fun, build a functioning web app that is deployed that they can then share with their, their friends and people they know around the world. And that's, that's phenomenal. Right. I always think that it's such a huge thing for people that the, the ability to show your work, you know, right. that they don't have to sit at your computer, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, web apps. Building a web app is one of the projects in the book. There's also a video game, Space Invaders clone, and a series of data visualizations. And so, you can do any or all of the projects. Point is, you go from knowing nothing about programming or very little about Python to having a complete project that you should be reasonably proud to show to other people and that's that's hugely different from a programming book that just takes you from knowing nothing to having a bunch of coding skills and now it's up to you to go right find a project and see if you can apply those so it's one of the strengths of the book right that's, a, that's such a huge yeah. thing <laughs> it's one of the strengths of the book it's one of my burdens because uh it's really two books in one and the first half of the book is not too hard to keep up to date it's a lot of work to keep the project section up to date yeah, I can imagine. We might talk more yeah. about that. Because yeah. <laughs> um, just even the hosting thing alone, I, I, I can <laughs> tell that things have changed just by kind of looking at some of the resources that you've had. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's tricky, <laughs> the changing world. Yes. One of the things I thought about is is the this crash course, you know, the title of the book is Python Crash Course. Is that a format that No Starch does? Because I saw that there's a handful of other books that use that title, like I think maybe C++ um, or a couple other ones. Is that something that, that you started or is something that that has, was partly there? Because I talked to different authors about they were you know hired to, to bring on and there was a, uh, Brett Slatkin came on and talked about his book and their, that design of the book that he was doing was in this question and answer kind of format, which was very interesting to me. Um, and I'm wondering if Crash Course is something that is a no-starch thing. It has become a no-starch thing. Um, okay. I'm going to be a little hazy on some of the the history of this. The The idea of two books in one really did come back from, come back to that experience of walking back into my classroom after being invited to write a book and seeing a poster on the wall that had 
the list of things you need to know and projects you could consider. Yeah. So when I put the proposal for the book together, I don't think Python Crash Course was the working title for the proposal. I think that was kind of workshopped from interactions with No Starch Press, and I think Bill might have come up with that title. I do, re- I do remember being asked at one point as the book expanded from the anticipated 250 pages to 550, are you sure this is still a crash course? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and you know, it was ambitious. And so I shake my head sometimes and think like, oh, this, this whole idea could have flopped. People could have looked at this book and said, this is way too much. <laughs> but I think the, the scaffolding really does work. And so one of the things I was going to mention earlier is in the development of, of programming books, in the 90s, programming books were like two, 300 pages. Yeah. And into the early 2000s, some of those books literally grew to 1,500 pages. Whoa. And that's a heavy book. <laughs> yeah. And what that is, it's not really a book at that point. It's a reference. Yeah, yeah. And so there were authors who started their writing in the, the late 80s um, into the 90s where you couldn't, programmers couldn't necessarily rely on an internet connection. And if they had an internet connection, they might not have access to full reference materials for a language. And so... Okay. So some of those really massive books really grew out of like an overcommitment to that idea of documenting everything in a language in a book. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It covers a topic that we touched on briefly on the show, creating visualizations with your data. It's titled Plot with Pandas, Python Data Visualization Basics. The course is based on an article by previous guest, Rekha Horvath. And in the course, Darren Jones takes you through what are the different types of pandas plots and when to use them, how to get an overview of your data set using a histogram, how to discover correlation with a scatter plot, and how to analyze different categories along with their ratios. Whether you're just getting to know a data set, preparing to publish your findings, or making a presentation, creating visualizations is essential. And like most of the video courses on Real Python, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for the technique shown, and all of our courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. That kind of brings me to a, a, a question I have about uh, some of the techniques of how you... I don't know, sort of reveal yes. things as you go. Yeah. The example I had was, uh, you know, do you, and I thought about a question about it, like, do you stress about showing ideas early in the book and then sort of explaining them later? An example would be you, you show this concept of multiple assignment that's done through this sort of tuple syntax, and that's like on page 28, and then you don't get to explaining what a tuple actually is until like page 65. And I wonder, like, there are people that, I guess could, you know, look at that and go, well, you're not even naming that, you know, like what that thing is. Yeah. <laughs> and if that is a, a complaint or, or also, you know, are, is it advantageous to do it in this way? Great question. <laughs> Everybody who would look at that passage and say, hey, you didn't name that thing is somebody who already knows the name of that thing. <laughs> right. And so when you know the name of that thing, you can look at all the other stuff that's being introduced 
ignore that because you already know it and just focus on this thing that's not being named. But if you try to name and explain everything as it comes up, you're going to overwhelm the person learning. It's just too much. Yeah. And so there's another factor there that's really, really interesting about teaching programming. Teaching programming is different than some other, many other topics because people have access to immediate feedback. And so if something works, people can see that. If something breaks, they see it right away. Right. So they get to see their errors and Python's even friendlier now about it, which is fantastic. So good. Telling you what you did wrong. (laughs) Yes. For anybody who's unclear, Chris is talking about the improved error messages in recent versions of Python. Yeah. Pablo's been on the show and we talked about it a lot. It's fantastic. So and he's doing he's doing real work there. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, if if it was not named explicitly, one of the things that impresses me most about that work is um, a lot of work in developing a programming language either benefits beginners or benefits the most experienced users. Yeah, there's, but this benefits both. Yeah, and there's not too many things that so clearly benefit all groups. Good stuff. Yeah. So I watched a presentation at one of the ed summit, education summits at PyCon a few years back where a classroom teacher shared the first uh, code example that they show all of their students the first day of class. Okay. And it was something like a user class or a student class. And it had an init method and maybe a greet method and several attributes like name, age, teacher, whatnot. And they would just show that, that .py file to their students and just ask their students what they saw huh. and start to ask them things like, what do you think is going to happen when we run this? And people can, especially in a group setting like that, where you can facilitate the conversation, people can kind of work out what might happen. Because of the readability of Python. The readability of Python and reasoning skills of students. Right. Because this kind of goes back to, this is about the the material, the instructor, and the the person learning. Yeah, how you're teaching it. Yeah. Yeah, that approach. And so learners have intuition. And some have more than others, and some have more access to their intuition than others. But... Something like, say, seeing people unpacking early on without it being named, people can see, okay, yeah, I can define more than one variable on a line. And they just kind of like see that. And when it comes back, again, you can either just keep using it or you can name it and then explain it and then keep using it. So that, that balance of how much to explain is an interesting one for, for teaching. Yeah, I thought the the other place I saw that and was like kind of scratching my head going uh does that work is the functions and then importing modules which felt early to me you know like the the idea that where does that come up you know in in some ways but it's important and and people need to know it because it's such a common thing that they're going to see in other people's work they you know see it out there but it's very interesting, you know, because it's like they're they're kind of tied together pretty closely within a, a few pages. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll reiterate the, the guiding question for the book. Have you heard that term before, guiding questions? I kind of get an, an idea of it, but I haven't heard it as a, as a, a teaching principle. Yeah, for um, classroom teaching, we talk about it a lot. A guiding question is, or sorry, a set of guiding questions is a set of carefully crafted questions um, that should literally guide an investigation. Right. So if if you're doing a unit, say about volcanoes, guiding questions are like, why do we care? 
I, I'm saying it lightly so they're not as carefully crafted as, as you might otherwise, but they give purpose to the overall investigation and they help you define scope. Okay. So a good set of guiding questions will help you decide you can't cover everything. So what are you going to keep in and what are you going to, to leave out? And so the guiding question for Python Crash Course is, what's the least you need to know about programming in order to be able to take on uh, the product you care about, you're interested in? And so I come back to that question. So let's literally let's literally get you going, get you doing stuff. We're gonna you can fill in the blanks later if if you're that type of person that wants to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, I've given you the terminology and you can you can do that research if you're that kind of researcher but otherwise you're going to start using it yeah and so take list for example so i love teaching lists they're my absolute favorite thing to teach about because you take people go from like print hello world that shows your programming environment works name equals eric print name okay now we can attach a piece of information to a variable but then how do we deal with more than one piece of information and list, you know, you can show a simple example, like we can take anybody who's not a programmer, teach them how a list works in 20 minutes. It's kind of a fun conversation. But you also get to walk away from that conversation and say, oh, you can put as much information in that list as your computer has memory. Right. <laughs> and so that simple concept immediately becomes as big as you want. So what do people need to know about lists? You need to know that you can add items, take items away, access items, loop over items. Do you need to know that you can combine two lists? You're not going to need that right away. Right. The, 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 the go deep thing is such a common strategy. I would say real Python does a yes. lot of that. Yeah. And there's... <laughs> we're, we're that reference yes. that, that people go to. They're like, okay, lists. And then people maybe stop at the 25% point and go full. Um, <laughs> I, I'm good. You know, I don't know if I need to know like all of this additional stuff beyond it, but that is like our, our motive, I guess, is to, to, to do the deep dive. Right. And I do that in some other work. So I've um, started writing a newsletter. It's mostly python.substack. And I've really enjoyed it because I do get to do some of the same kind of dives that you're talking about. Yeah. So my goal is, my goal as a newsletter is to say, if you understand the basics, how can I help you be, get into the intermediates and some advanced topics as well? And every time I choose a series like focusing on lists, I end up learning so much about the internals and yeah, and all that. Well, I was just going to say kind of in a related thing that you, in order to get to the project section, you, I don't know, maybe a third of the way in the book, I would argue that the difficulty sort of starts to ramp. Mm -hmm. You you get to functions, mm -hmm. and then I mentioned importing there, and then boom, you're in classes, mm -hmm. kind of learning the, some of the fundamentals of OOP, but not not the crazy, super intense deep dive, mm -hmm. which is important. And then and then you're in files, which is combined with exceptions, and then you're in testing, which I think is also really a really interesting thing to add in in this type of book. Yeah. I was going to say, so the, the guiding question is, what's the least you need to know about, you know, in order to work on your own projects? So another guiding principle for me in, in choosing what to include and leave out is how easily can you learn this thing if I don't include it? Okay. So with lists, with lists, 
we have to show people how to add items, remove items, access items, Lou. Right. There's probably a few other things we should show, but when you get to something like, do I need to show people how to combine two lists? Can they easily look that up? If I just Google right. Python combine two lists, if I understand the, the things we've already talked about, can they make sense of that? If the answer is a clear yes, then that's a strong candidate for something to leave out of an intro book. Yeah, okay. And I think another reason for um, the success of Python Crash Course and the reason it works for so many people is because that careful careful curation. Right. And each time... Um, it's, it's, <laughs> Do you, it's almost like you could, you could have that massive, I don't know, the, the glossary of terms that would fall underneath one, each one of these sections like okay well these are all the methods that they could learn about and like are you just like like starring the the, the most critical path <laughs> yeah i think is what's the mark let's book was that learning python do you know is a pink o'reilly book um it sounds right that's that's the book that was about 250 pages in the 90s grew to 400 500 pages and then 750 i think was the the edition that I got in the mid 2000s, and the last edition I think was might have top 1600 pages. Um, wow, that's there's value in those books, and I have learned from some of those books, um, but they're not intro books. It's okay, but that's definitely an O'Reilly book. And Mark Lutz is the author with uh, David Asher. Is like a 2003 book. Is the second edition, which I don't know if there's a. I grasped the. Okay, I, I know where I was going with that. I graphed the page count for that book okay. as a help helping me think about revising Python Crash Course each time it came to do a new edition. Okay. So for the second and third editions, my goal was to not increase the page count of the book. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about things that you decided to change and and that's that's a guiding principle too then <laughs> yeah which is interesting as python grows more features and so it's interesting right it's been interesting to go through each new feature that python introduces and ask is this something that my audience needs to know in their first exposure to python yeah and as much as we like a lot of the new features a lot of them i don't cover like i don't cover walrus operator i do uh, cover things like pathlet um, and it's really enjoyable to see changes. That's probably a fun update. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a fun update, and it's a fun update to my own workflows. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just looked at just the table of contents, and it goes on for I don't know how many pages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for that book, yeah. Okay, uh, okay. So you brought up something interesting that I haven't really responded to, and that is the jump in difficulty that comes in the course of this intro material. Yeah, I just wondered, like, I, d I didn't go through it page by page and, and experience it as a, as a learner. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it as the other teacher mm -hmm. and go, whoa, that's pretty crazy. We're getting to testing already, you know, from functions to testing in, in four lessons, you know, or four chapters. Yeah. And then boom, you're in projects, which I, I think is, I think it's cool. I, I just, I wonder, like, you know, is that something that people struggle with? Yeah. Fun, fun questions. I've long, for a long time, I've said that a book is a promise, especially a, a nonfiction instructional book. A book is a promise that if you start here with me, I will take you to this endpoint. Yeah. And so, thinking about what to include in the first half of an introductory book that's going to lead into projects is kind of defining what that promise is going to be. 
And so, you know, I would argue that if you want somebody to have a solid foundation as an independent programmer in Python, they absolutely need to know what functions are. Yeah. They need to know how to use them. They need to know how to write them. They need to be aware of some of the complexity of of um, the different ways you can write arguments and parameters. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, it's not going to work. <laughs> right. They don't need to master that, especially arbitrary numbers of arguments and arbitrary keyword arguments. Those are kind of heady abstract concepts for somebody who's new to programming. Right. They should be aware of it, but they shouldn't expect expect to master it. As far as working with modules goes, people do need to understand how to split a growing program over multiple files. Right. And so I feel like when you start to use functions is a natural place to to start to to see that. And maybe you don't use it. I mean, it's interesting to watch people's workflows on brand new projects. You know, are you the kind of person who sets up multiple files and starts working in a, a nicely um, structured way right away? Or are you somebody who tends to work all in one file and then split things out as they grow? That's that's an interesting question for experienced programmers. Yeah, I think about, you know, so many beginner books kind of approach it as like, let's just get you to be a scripter. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that you're actually kind of teaching somebody to be, or at least introducing that the concepts of like, hey, this this is how you can grow something so it's actually, I don't want to say manageable, but like at least you have structure. Um, and kind of see how things can interact with each other. And and it's used everywhere else, you know, if you go outside the script world, you know. Right. What I don't do is teach all the intricacies of the import system. Right. But what I try to do is show people what's possible. Because some people will see a really long file, single file with a bunch of functions and then calling those functions. And that's perfectly fine to them. And if you try to split it up, it becomes more complex. There are some people who will see that same long file and it will look complex to them because there's so much in that one file. And if you split it up, it suddenly makes more sense to them. And so you kind of, as a teacher, you have to be ready to serve both of those kinds of learners, kinds of, of workers. Yeah. You already mentioned some of it, but like this is the third edition. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure when the first edition came out, but what were you excited about rewriting in this version of the book? All right. So I'll, I'll use that as a segue to to get at the testing question as well. Sure. So I, the testing chapter, I think, is about 11 or 12 pages. I did not learn about testing until I was about 20 years into my life as a programmer. I would say that's not uncommon. <laughs> yeah. And so when I finally learned about testing, it was so much simpler than I thought it would be. Okay. A complex test suite is really complicated and hard to wrap your head around. But writing... Writing a single test function and then a small set of like three or four test functions is not overly difficult. And I like sleep. I particularly, I like walking away from my computer and being confident that I'm not going to be surprised by, by bugs, <laughs> new bugs and errors. Sure. And so testing is what gives you that, that comfort and that sleep, um, that ability to walk away from your computer for a while. And so my goal and you can, I think you can see this in that chapter. My goal is not to teach people much of the intricacies at all about testing, 
But just to show that it's possible, show what it does, and just plant that idea so that it's not a it's not a big scary thing that you've never seen before. Okay. And again, like Pablo's work on uh, error messages, PyTest just blows my mind to have a tool yeah. that makes testing simpler than it was in the standard library. Well, that's the thing that I feel people are feel like they have to teach is the standard library way. And it's like, just because it existed before this fantastic tool was here, is this really the best thing to show a beginner? Or, you know, somebody that you want to just get introduced to the concept? Or should we show them something that's going to make their life, like, not as... <laughs> I don't want to say as, as difficult, but it's just like, it, it's kind of clunky, you know, in some ways. And you can show lots of... It's an interesting idea, you know, to say, hey, let's just jump to this. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, you asked what I'm excited about updating. Um, I was excited, very excited to drop unit test and move to PyTest. Okay. PyTest amazes me because it's one of these packages that is simple, simple enough that it's appropriate to teach to people as their first experience testing. Yeah. But complex enough that, like, um, organizations should use PyTest for their, their tests. That's a that's a strong testament to how well designed that that package is. <laughs> yeah, but the the first edition came out in 2015. I started writing in 2013. I naively thought I could draft it in the summer and then revise it during the school year, and it turned into two and a half years of early mornings and late nights. But at that point, there was no accepted, there was no established single third party library for testing. It was kind of toss up between like Nose and PyTest. I stuck with the the standard library unit test at that point, but PyTest has clearly emerged as the the go to third party yeah. testing library. So that was kind of a nice thing that you were excited about, maybe rewriting and yeah. And it also um, the nice thing about that is it gives everybody the experience of installing a third party package in the first half of the book, right? Because if, okay. when people finish the first half, they can then go on to the video game project or the data visualization or the, the web app project. All of those require third-party packages. And so it's kind of awkward to say, like, if you haven't installed a package, go look at this, blah, blah, blah. But if everybody's done that with PyTest, right. you can just use the same pip install that they already used. Yeah, that's good, too. Yeah, I mean, get them up to speed in that process and... Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like, it's, I wonder if you had doubt in your mind as you were assembling these things that you're like, is this going to work? Is this enough information for them to to get there? Was was there some questioning? Um, or did that get kind of worked out during, you know, sort of the review process of the book? Uh, that is an interesting question. You know, when I wrote the first edition, everybody who touched the book was free to tear it apart. Um, because it had not been tested by end users. With the second edition, I just take a step back and say, you know, one of the things I'm proud of is I have responded to just about every single email anybody has ever sent me about the book. And I told That's a lot of feedback. It is. I told Bill that at one point, and he kind of laughed at me with the mindset of like, you don't have to do that. And <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, I know, but I... When I put those two and a half years into writing the book initially, my goal was to have a book that would be one of the stable Python learning books for 10 years. 
Like it's kind of hard to imagine putting that much work into a book and then not maintaining it. Sure. So I'm a teacher at heart. I've spent my whole life teaching. And so in some sense, I, I just plain enjoy hearing from people learning from my work. There's another aspect of it where as I respond to people, I'm looking for patterns in the questions they're asking. Yeah. And so if somebody asks a one-off question about something nobody's ever asked before, I just answer that. But if I start to see patterns, then I make notes about how to change what's explained in the book in a way that will alleviate those questions. And so... Right. I, I do that all the time in the courses that we have, the video courses. Yeah. It's like this, it's like the Sixth Sense movies. Like, I... I see questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see comments coming and I don't, I would like to avoid that, right. you know, like if it's possible, like yep. if I can help you as the reviewer of your work, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if you do that, if you do that well enough, then the questions remain interesting because people aren't asking you the same questions over time. Yeah. They're new and the unique questions are, are interesting. So, when it came to writing the second edition, writing the third edition, particularly by the third edition, there were things that would come up, say, chapter eight is about functions. And if a reviewer suggested like changing some, I had an experience with one of the reviewers suggested changing pretty significantly one of the passages. And my response was, literally millions of people have learned about functions from this, this page. I have to weigh the points you're bringing up against a million people not asking me a question about about that one page. And, you know, I say that very objectively. Like, I have appreciated um, No Start staff and everybody who has worked on the book coming at the project with that open mind of being critical. Right. But it's interesting as the book ages to start to weigh, like, individual questions against that collective experience of everybody who's read it. Yeah. I guess I kind of, we could talk about the changes maybe of what has happened with the projects. Mm-hmm. Um, have they changed across versions? Yeah, it was interesting. The So the Space Invaders clone is called Alien Invasion, and it uses a Pygame. Pygame is another library that I'm so impressed with. It's just been so stable over the years. And it's still... Yeah, they just keep working on it. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> Which is great. it's such a good experience for people to user what they've learned about python and develop an understanding of how games work so people are not writing modern 3d games in pygame but you probably shouldn't start by trying to write a a modern 3d game right Um, there's so much you learn by about how code defines interactions in a game by focusing on a simple 2d game and you know i would never go to a machine and play a Space Invaders clone these days. But if it's code that I wrote, I'll play it for an hour. There's something about <laughs> right. playing a game that, that you wrote the code for. So when I first wrote it, it was function-based. Um, everything was a function. And by the end, there were like 10 arguments in some of the function calls. So a bunch of my emails were like, oh, this isn't working. Oh, you got the order of your arguments wrong. So in the second edition, the game became class-based. Okay. It's a little more... Showing objects. Yeah, the, the whole game is an object. So all the functions become methods, and there's just yeah. very few arguments passed around. 
Um, the drawback is it's a little more complicated. So I do get questions from people initially, like, I don't understand the first couple of pages of the, the game project, but the payoff is huge. And so I just tell people, like, here's, a, here's an online explanation that goes a little bit further, but for the most part, like, trust it, start to work with it, and you'll start to see how pieces interact. And it's worked. So that's been yeah. quite satisfying. That's good. It seems like the graphing one, you've chosen a variety of libraries over time because things have changed. Yeah. I saw PyGal as the one that you were using for a little while. Um, I don't know if that's the second version or whatever, which I talked about that yeah. maybe two years ago on the show. I think it's mostly uh, Matplotlib and Plotly now. It is. Yeah, I enjoyed PyGal. That was the first edition. Um, Matplotlib has stayed in because it's is the foundation of so much graphical work yeah. in Python. And so there are other libraries you should probably consider for professional projects, but most of those are built on top of Matplotlib. Yeah. And so having an understanding of Matplotlib is really beneficial for making sense of whatever library you choose. I like that you show styling. Yeah. Um, that's something that I feel like doesn't get covered enough. And it's like, people want to make things look nice and make it look their own. And something as simple as like choosing that is like huge and to me, you know? Yeah. And it's hard to teach. It's hard to teach because I feel like good programming teaching should include references to documentation. You should kind of yeah. start to um, off onboard your learners onto the library of documentation. But that documentation is so, so vast that how do you choose the right places to dump people into it? Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> what city are you yeah. sending them on an off-ramp yeah. to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought a good a good um, video course would be a guided tour of documentation of some different packages. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that too. Like, what, what are best practices for navigating? Yeah. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and you, you kind of like during the graphing you know, person going through it gets to work initially with just some sort of fundamental data and then you work with CSVs and then you work with APIs and mm -hmm. were there changes there over time as far as like things that you would choose uh, to to sort of ramp up the budding data scientist? Uh, no, I really, you described that well. The, the first chapter of the data project used computer-generated data which is nice because you're generating all the data, so there's no stability issues. The next part is using CSV files, and it's focused on weather data and earthquake data. I set it up so people can download those files from my resources, so if those original data sources disappear or change, it, it doesn't affect the book. Um, right. The API section is harder. We use a GitHub API, and I kind of cross my fingers that it stays open. Right. I went to a conference once. Um, it was for a, a totally different, you know, tool and so forth. It was this thing called FileMaker. And it was, this person was showing like how to integrate APIs into this FileMaker, you know, tool and format and so forth. And I raised the question and everybody just like stared at me. And my question was, well, what do you do if, they change the API on you or the API goes away. What what kind of things can you set up to to make, you know, like 
this fail well or, you know, lots of other kinds of things. Like we're, it was just stuff that was in my mind, even as a beginner in this platform and, you know, trying to integrate this stuff. Like the idea like you have of adding testing in this early book, you know, like to me is always kind of the sort of thing. And, and I think APIs are th- that other thing was like, <laughs> I don't know. I even, yeah, that, that was like maybe, I don't know, nine years ago or something like that, that I went to this conference and, and they just sort of looked at me like, oh, they're just always going to be there. I'm like, I don't, oh. I don't think so. <laughs> Oof, that's naive. <laughs> you know, it's like, that was the vibe I got, you know? <laughs> it was like address data. And I'm like, well, that company could close down or whatever. And it's like, anyway, it was, it was a strange experience I had, like where everybody just turned and looked at me like I was the weirdo. Like I was messing up his presentation. I'm like, well, I'm trying to help other people here by asking this question too. So Yeah. Pipeline Crash Course sells consistently enough that I get to update it. I get to do incremental updates whenever it goes to a new print new printing. Yeah. And so those really should be minimal. But you know, if like the GitHub API disappeared, um, I could propose a more significant change and and have something that works. Right. It is interesting though, if so the last project is a, a Django web app, and I include deployment because the natural question once you have a, a working web app on your local system is how do I share this with my friends? And so if you can walk people through deployment, it's just infinitely more satisfying. Yeah. So the first edition came out in 2015, and that was Heroku's heyday. And so it used Heroku and like, I, there's part of me that didn't sleep well for the rest of my life, wondering when the deployment process would break. Um, and it finally did. And mm-hmm. we had the Heroku migration. Yeah. And so the, the third edition uses platform.sh, but I have the same questions about stability. Uh, so I'm actually working on a, a project called Django Simple Deploy. That Are you, are you familiar with Django? Yeah. Okay, so... I a couple of years ago, I wrote a custom Heroku build pack that when you were just before you push your project with Gipush Heroku, you would run like a Heroku set build pack and you would specify this custom build pack. And if you then did git push Heroku main dash dash automate all, it would do everything for you. It would write your proc file, it would modify your settings. It would do all that boilerplate stuff that we tell people to do, and right. it would magically work. Um, and it felt just like the magic of Heroku. Right. But it, it was really unsatisfying because it felt like doing Heroku's work for them. And it was also unsatisfying because it only works for Heroku. Right. And so my shower thought was one day was like, wow. My shower question was, how could I do that in Django's world instead of Heroku's world? And my shower thought, shower thought answer was, oh, I can write a management command that you give the platform name and then it modifies your project for configuration for that platform. So that's how Django Simple Deploy was born. And it's pip install Django Simple Deploy. Uh, You add Simple Deploy to your installed apps and then you run a single command. Python manage.py, Simple Deploy, dash dash platform, and you can name Heroku, or you can name Fly.io, or you can name Platform SH. And if you do Automate All, your project just appears in a new browser window. Nice. You have to have that, that platform CLI installed. 
but you don't have to go to you don't have to go to that platform's docs. You don't have to pre-provision an app. You just make your account, download their CLI, run this command, and your project appears. And so that's that's helpful for, to beginners. It's also helpful to authors. So if that project matures and becomes stable, anybody who wants to cover deployment can use this tool instead of teaching the platform-specific deployment process. And then... Right, which is a book of in itself. <laughs> right. And then that that simple deploy project becomes a boundary layer between the the teaching resource and the platforms that change all the time. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's nice. That that was a big change, I guess, for this this edition. I don't use it in the book yet. My goal is to have that project stable enough to use for the, the fourth edition if we get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're getting a little long here, and I wanted to just touch on a couple quick things. You provide some additional resources, uh, you know, the code and, and so forth, but... Yes. You seem to be a fan of cheat sheets, and I, I thought that was really kind of cool. Like, Is that something that has you've got through sort of a battle-tested classroom experience, or what? what's kind of the, the reasoning behind including them? Uh, the cheat sheets, thank you for bringing that up. They, I have benefited so much from cheat sheets over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say cheat sheets, I'm talking about literal, like, printed cheat sheets most of the time, but also just, okay, a cheat sheet is another promise. A cheat sheet is a promise that a lot of the information you need is on this Defined eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. Yeah. Defined eight and a half by eleven equivalent piece of screen real estate. Um, I have a chip on my shoulder about all these websites that are called cheat sheets that you have to scroll and scroll and scroll. Those are not cheat sheets. Those are maybe concise summaries, maybe references, but uh, but they're not a sheet. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> right. Um, I think it was Revsys a long time ago put out some Django cheat sheets. And I read through my first Django resources, and then I just used those cheat sheets for a year or two. And so when I was getting questions from people about doing the exercises for Python Crash Course, I realized that one cheat sheet per chapter would probably be really useful for people. And so that's that's the origin story for those cheat sheets. They, they've been downloaded more times than the book is in print. They've been downloaded <laughs> like 3 million times. Yeah. Um, because when I've shared them, I've said that they were inspired by Python Crash Course, but they're not exclusive to that. So they're useful for anybody working through an intro Python resource. And the goal is, as people are doing their first sets of Python exercises, you know, it's a lot of people say, they write and say, like, oh, I feel like I'm failing these exercises because I'm constantly flipping back to look at the book. And I say, like, right. Learning programming is not about memorizing, so you should expect to have to look at what you've been learning in order to write your own code. And so the cheat sheets are kind of a segue out of always flipping through the book. And so you can ideally look at this one sheet as you're doing exercises focused on a particular topic and start to feel more confident about the code that you're writing. Yeah. I think about sometimes, like, I did this uh, as a a thing. I was teaching... uh, Again, software applications to recording engineers who all wanted to just use hardware. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I made sort of a fill in the blank version of a cheat sheet where I basically taught the class and I said, okay, well, what should you put here? And right. basically they created their own cheat sheet. Yeah. 
and they were filling it in. And it's like, if you're going to make the effort in my class, then you're going to have this useful tool. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't bother filling it all in, then, then you have the useless tool that you didn't bother to fill in. Right. But otherwise, this this is like, you know, battle-tested stuff that i you know gone through this class six years or whatever, you know, and I, I found that these are the things that people get stuck on. And I feel like this is where you could find that. And, but if you write it in, then you're kind of, so I've thought about that for programming. I haven't, you know, done it, but that kind of idea of like, like taking notes or other things that can help you kind of mm-hmm. solidify your learning. Well, cool. I was going to mention briefly that you have a flashcards book and I just wanted to ask, um, are you a fan of flashcards also? Uh, and how have you used them? The Python flashcards were interesting. After the book came out and started to be successful, um, Bill from No Starch said that he'd wanted to see flashcards done and nobody had taken up the project yet. So I said I, I would try that. And so the idea of the flashcards is for people to have a portable set of learning resources that um, are not bound. And so the idea is you take the, the set of flashcards, you pull out the, the ones related to what you're currently learning, say lists, and then you just kind of read the front of the flashcard, see if you can answer it, flip it over, there's an answer. But if it's something you're still not sure about, you keep in your stack. And if you have become confident in that, you put it in your kind of discard pile. So the goal is it's a very clear physical stack of things that you see getting smaller and smaller as you learn more. And the, the idea was, um, also, if you are learning from a book, learning on the computer, you have some things that you can take with you when you're away from a screen and just kind of pop them out and say like, ooh, not in front of a computer. Can I still like think about this and, and understand it? And so they haven't sold super well because they, the ways that people use them don't come across super clearly when they're, say, looking at Amazon. But they've been at um, the No Search booth every time there's a conference and when people walk up and see them in person and can like see this physical stack and pick up a card and put it down they really like it and so the people who have bought them have really enjoyed them they might make the the mistake that i did of like calling it a book <laughs> oh yeah no, no problem seeing it online and not like recognizing yep. the, the idea of it yeah cool so eric i have these questions i like to ask everybody and the first one is What's something that you're excited about right now in the world of Python? I am loving conferences again. Um, I appreciate that Python conferences have uh, yeah been appropriate to go to during COVID times because of appropriate masking policies. So I loved PyCon last year and this year. Went to DjangoCon for the first time last year and plan to go back to DjangoCon this fall. Yeah, it's so especially living in a small town where I don't know any other programmers. Um, these events are <laughs> these events are fantastic for <laughs> for my well being. Yeah, do you have ones that you're going to this year beyond PyCon? I, when I go to events now, I tend to stay for a full week of sprints because I'm involved in a number of projects. So the trips are long enough that I can really only do a couple a year. Um, my son's in my son's in middle school when he graduates high school and moves out. It makes sense. I'll probably go to more, but it's it's likely to be PyCon and JangoCon for a little while longer. Okay. Um, what's something that you want to learn next? In this case, it doesn't have to be about programming. It could be anything. I'm enjoying piano. To be specific about Python, I'm loving testing. So I'm I'm focused on getting better at testing more complex projects. And there's so many things to learn. I'll just throw up Pandas as well. Um, I'm amazed at how quickly and easily you can 
dive deep into a variety of data sets. Um, and I want to become more fluent with pandas for that purpose. Yeah, I'm hoping to get the people that worked on the the latest revision of it, um, the Panda 2.0, and talk about it soon. So trying to get that, uh, it's more like a scheduling thing. Yeah, you know, Python is known for giving people super superpowers, and I feel like Pandas is one of those focused libraries that gives us very specific superpowers. Yeah, definitely. So how can people follow the work that you do online? <laughs> There's two places people should be aware of. If people are working through Python Crash Course, you should definitely know about the online resources. There's a bunch that are helpful for working through the book. They're at um, ehmathis.github.io slash pcc underscore 3e. If you look up Python Crash Course resources, you should be able to find that as well. Yeah, I'll include the links for that yeah. in the show notes there. And I'm writing weekly about Python, uh, uh, mostly Python, all one word, dot substack. And the, the focus for my writing each week is is over time helping helping people move from a beginner Python mindset to intermediate and into advanced topics, and especially around deeper understanding of Python fundamentals and how we apply it to a variety of projects. It's really fun. Yeah, how long have you been doing this now? I started that in December. I was looking for a way to write more consistently in real time, um, and I'm, it's a lot of work, but I'm loving it. It just lets me do deep dives into a bunch of little topics and have some longer running threads as well. Uh, we do this PyCoders version of the show that are is more about articles and so forth. So I want to make sure that he's aware of it because there's a lot of interesting stuff um, uh, that's happening on, on that Substack. I, I like what you're writing about. Yeah, thank you. Well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you. Yeah, I've uh, benefited from Real Python so much over the years. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I want to thank Eric Mathis for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.